My guest founded a feminist press in the 1970s and began writing lesbian mysteries in the 1980s, which makes it no surprise that Golden Crown Literary Society honored her with a Trailblazer Award. We talk about putting a spin on spinster sleuths, different types of loving relationships, and having a novel go to the big screen. Come along and listen in on my conversation with author Barbara Wilson. It's time to put on your sleuthing cap, feel nail-biting dread, and face heart-racing fear. This is Queer Writers of Crime, where you'll get book recommendations and hear interviews with LGBTQ authors of mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. Here's your host, Brad Shree. Hi, this is Brad, and welcome to Queer Writers of Crime. My guest today is Barbara Wilson, and she has been awarded by the Historical Novel Society, the British Crime Writers Association. Uh, she's been nominated six times for Lambda Literary Awards and won two Lammies in those nominations. And her next book is Love Dice Twice. It is currently available for pre-order. So remember that it is currently available for pre-order. Barbara wants you to remember that. And it's coming out in May. And Barbara, I'm so glad to have you. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Brad. Thank you. Probably the biggest reason I'm glad to have you. It's fun to have you on the podcast. But because of the podcast, I get very little pleasure reading. So because I'm always reading books by my guests. And because you, you're on the show and you sent me your book, I'm like, I get to read her book. And it was a great follow-up to the last one. I really enjoyed uh, Not the Real Jupiter and uh, Love Dice Twice as well. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to hear that. So this is the sixth Cassandra Riley mystery. Right. And Cassandra, as a translator, she travels the world and gets into a lot of mischief. And by mischief, I mean finds dead bodies or gets involved in murders. As a translator yourself... You have traveled the world quite a bit. I'm going to presume you haven't come across a body, but what has been your biggest adventure? Gosh, um, I've uh, fallen in and out of love a few times, more than a few times. But I actually have seen a bank robbery. Um, so maybe that was a great adventure. That was in oh, where? in London once. Yeah. Um, in the, I was staying there for about six months. And uh, just going about my business, and I came walking up to the bank, um, and uh, this man ran out, and then the police came, and everyone was shouting, and uh, I realized I had actually witnessed a crime. <laughs> How did that feel? Uh, it was exciting. There were no guns involved, which I was grateful for, um, and I suppose that they caught him. I actually never heard, but he just dashed off. And I don't even know if he got the money. Um, he didn't have a big bag over his shoulder or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> like in the movie. <laughs> right, right. And there's no getaway car. Well, my guess is uh, in London, it's the same, or in England, it's the same as here in the States. Tellers and bank managers are told, don't fight. Just give it over. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. He may have had some cash there somewhere. Yeah. I didn't ask you a question when you were on before, and I'm going to ask you now. Not the Real Jupiter came out in 2021. The case of the orphaned bassoonist came out in 2000. So book number four of the Cassandra Mysteries was in year 2000, and then 21 years later, she's back. Why did you stop writing 
Cassandra Riley Mysteries? I think I wanted to try something else. Um, I mean, I had always sort of balanced writing mysteries with writing short stories, and I had turned my hand to writing a memoir about my childhood called Blue Windows, which was published in 1997. And I really liked writing nonfiction. I liked writing essays, and I just had never really had the chance. So around 2000, I, uh, you know, I had been the owner of one of the owners of Seal Press, and we we sold the press. And I decided that I'd like to do some traveling. Um, and I traveled first um, to the North Atlantic, and I wrote a book about women in the sea called The Pirate Queen. And then I spent three winters in Lapland and wrote a book uh, called The Palace of the Snow Queen about that. And as a result of writing about uh, the north of Scandinavia and the indigenous Sami people, I I started just working in that field much more and doing a lot of research, doing a lot of translation. And I suppose in the back of my mind, I thought, well, maybe I'll write a mystery again sometime, but kind of got postponed. Um, and I think that I'd been thinking about Cassandra quite a lot um, in the last years, sort of, that's my character, Cassandra Riley, the translator, sleuth. And I had been sort of missing her and wondering what she'd be up to if I were allow, to allow her to grow older with me. And one day the idea came to me um, for Not the Real Jupiter, and I just started writing. I think that was a few years ago. And I worked on it and put it aside and worked on it again and finally published it last year. And by that time, I was already writing another one um, because I had enjoyed the experience so much. So I'm not sure exactly how often I'll be publishing the Cassandra Riley books, but I'm glad that I've kind of returned to them. They're fun for me. And um, I think they allow me to play around with language and ideas about translation. Um, the whole mystery genre is one I actually really adore. So it's been it's been so nice just to be back in that world again. Well, you mentioned uh, when you were North Atlantic that you wrote a book on feminism. Is that correct? Uh, women in the Sea. Yeah, stories of women in the okay. sea and. Uh, odd places that I went to, to ask information and, and tell stories about everything from mermaids to fisherwomen to Vikings. Well, I ask because in the Cassandra Riley's mysteries, feminism is very much a part of the novels, not just because she's a woman, issues are brought up. So I'm curious over that 20 year, yeah, over that 20 year period, she not only has age, but tell me how you feel about the status of women in, in literature and writing these days. Well, um, it's always changing. Some things remain the same. Women um, don't make the same living or get the same awards as men often. Um, men don't often read women's literature. The women read men's literature. Um, so some things are the same, but many things are much better, I think. Um, you know, lots of the most popular books and the most honored books these days are written by women. So that's really different from the past when women struggle even to get published. Yeah, I I think it's two steps forward, one step back. Usually um, violence against women is still very much with us. 
and not just in this country, but all around the world. And even though more women are heads of companies and heads of countries, um, women still struggle with preconceptions about whether they're able to lead, able to take charge, able to run things. Um, I think we see that in this country very much. So, Well, we think we've come a long way. And then let's say you look at a picture of Congress and yeah, there's women in there, but not nearly enough. Right. Yes. And some of those women are actually crazy, the Republicans. So that's not an advance in my book. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) I didn't even think about that. (laughs) Maybe that helps to be a crazy woman to get elected. I I don't know. So you kind of touched on it, Cassandra aging. Nero Wolf was first written, I think, in the 1930s. And those books spanned about 50 years. Nero Wolf didn't age. But New York City did. It aged around him. Uh, Richard Stevenson, Donald Strachey novel, his first one, Death Wish, that came out during the AIDS crisis. His most recent novel that came out, I think, last year, they were arguing about Trump. (laughs) Yet Donald Strachey had hardly aged at all. And he said, he said, (laughs) his publisher told him in the early days that nobody wants to read about old people. So. If you were starting as a new writer today, this is your first novel, would you feel comfortable writing about an older sleuth? And do you think it would be uh, more difficult to get published? Well, it depends on how old I was if I was starting with my first novel. If I was as old as I am now, um, that would be quite an accomplishment, actually. So I think it's more interesting to me that I started writing about Cassandra way back when, um, about 30 years ago, and she was actually older than I was at that point. And I was just kind of curious when I was in my 30s what a woman in her 40s um, would be like. I thought of that as older. Um, And so um, she's now a little bit younger than I am because I've had to keep her sort of pre-COVID um, time so that she can still travel. So the last book is taking place in 2019. It's taking place in England and she goes to Barcelona and she goes to Brussels and Bruges and um, she wouldn't be able to do that really so easily with COVID. I had some interesting conversations after I published Not the Real Jupiter because um, some writers I talked to said, no, they had never aged their detective. They'd been told, don't do that, you know, uh, keep them at least, you know, early 40s so they can still run around and cause trouble. And I do see the issue because physically, as you get to be in your 60s and 70s, you can't jump out of windows. And, um, you know, a lot of people are not quite as physically fit as they were 30, 40 years ago. But I think what you gain by having an older detective and having told the story of someone's life is that you have that wonderful retrospective view that they can look back at times in the past in their own life and in the culture of gay and lesbian life um, and they can remember what the bars were like what the early days were like what the homophobia was like they have that wisdom and that experience. And I think that's actually very valuable to us as queer people to have elders who tell the story of of what it was like. And I think 
queer elders also can act as role models. I mean, not in terms of being perfect and, you know, being educators, but just showing you can survive all these years. You can be happy. You can be uh, still working. You can be energetic. You can fall in love. You can have sex when you're 60 and when you're 70. And for that matter, probably when you're 80, I don't know. I'm not quite there yet. Well, it is a you are allowed to be older and queer these days. It was uh, it wasn't allowed in the past. Once you hit thirty, uh, you were you're supposed to go away. You talked about COVID. Do you anticipate adding COVID in maybe your next book, or do you think you'll skip over it? No, I think I will add it. I've kind of thought about it in different ways. One is that I have Cassandra sort of stuck somewhere um, during COVID, like in Chile, for instance, um, and starting to write her stories of when she was younger, say. She's remembering things while still being stuck there. And another is to kind of skip forward a little bit to the time when we can travel again. And so maybe she's masked or maybe she's eager to get out into the world again. Times have changed. Um, I, I think I'll be ready to explore that. And I, I've kind of made a few fumbling attempts um, to set it after COVID. It's hard because I don't actually feel like it's after COVID. It's sort of getting close possibly to one phase being over. Yeah. I, that's a, a tricky question for most of us as writers. How much are we going to incorporate this strange last couple of years? Yes, it's been really mixed. And when you mentioned it, you reminded me of an email I got from a, a reader, which is why I asked you. And she said, Brad, I'm sorry, I heard you say you're going to have COVID in your next novel, and I won't be able to read it. And I <laughs> I said back, I said, first of all, I don't remember ever saying I was going to have COVID in my next novel. I always set my novel a year behind so I can put real events, but I'm going to leave it further behind the next one. And, and I, I understood where she's coming from. Everybody's really tired of it now. And I really hear a lot of different authors. Some are saying they're going to put it because they want to be real. And they think, in fact, a reader told me yesterday that 30 years from now, it needs to be in fiction so people know what, what it was like. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's the second time somebody has said that to me. And, and it's interesting because others are saying, I don't want to hear about it. So an interesting choice that you're choosing to do that. And it'll be... Uh, very interesting to see how you have her operate in a COVID environment. It is a challenge. That's yeah. a challenge. Well, it's been a different experience for everyone. Some people who are first responders or who are nurses have had a really different time than those of us who are lucky enough to a stable living situation and, and are mostly just bored and sad sometimes that we can't see our friends and do what we wanted. That's That's really different. People who have kids, for instance, have had a really different experience these last two years. Yes, it really has been different. I uh, I just moved to the desert and I'm in the middle of Trump country here in California. And it's really interesting to me to go down to Los Angeles and people are wearing their masks while they're at the pump, you know, pumping gas. <laughs> and I come back up here and, and half, half the people aren't wearing masks. The, you know, the hospital has the triage tent out in the emergency room and uh, uh, people are being turned away and yet everybody's walking around like nothing's happened. It's very strange. It is strange. Yeah. So there are going to be a lot of different kinds of stories when people finally start writing them. Lots of interesting ones. 
you can get more information about episodes, plus scoops on book releases and promotions by LGBTQ crime authors each and every week. Simply head over to QueerWritersOfCrime.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you wait until this episode is over, you may forget, so Brad made it easy and put the link right here in the show notes. Need a little nudge? Click it now and you'll also get a free ebook by one of a select group of outstanding authors. That makes not subscribing just plain silly. It's all yours at QueerWritersOfCrime.com. We talked about Cassandra Riley and I mentioned the book, Love Dice Twice. So now is the time for you. I'm going to start calling this Beyond the Blurb. Obviously, you can't tell us the whole story, but tell us as much as you can about the the novel. Well, the novel takes place in London for the most part, and it begins when Cassandra has a lunch date with an agent that she knows, a literary agent named Avery, who's also an American living in London for a long time. And Cassandra is always trying to get her authors translated. And she translates from Spanish. So in this case, it's a writer who lives in Spain who is uh, writing about a detective who's a former matador, a woman. And um, in the middle of this lunch, the agent suddenly tells Cassandra that she wants her to come to a talk, a lecture, and it's uh, it's on medieval women. And Cassandra heads off with her, and it turns out it has to do with a woman named Stella Terwicker, who was a historical mystery writer, Um, maybe gay, maybe not, but she's been dead for 10 years uh, from pneumonia. And her sister-in-law has written a biography about her, and this kind of is the catalyzing event that ends up with someone dead someone drowned in a pond on Hampstead Heath and uh, Cassandra being drawn into it in various ways, even though she doesn't know the person who was killed, um, she becomes involved in the, in the world around this woman and in the story of Stella Terwicker too, and, and all of these historical mysteries, which play a role in the mystery that I'm writing. And they take her to the, southern coasts of England, um, and also to Bruges in Belgium, um, following people, uh, putting herself in danger, getting a cold that turns into a very very terrible cough, um, being submerged in water herself. So, of course, eventually she finds out who might have done it and solves the murder in the best possible way. So regarding Cassandra, you your first novels were the Pam Nelson mysteries. I'll get to your earlier writings later, but your third Pam Nelson novel came out in 1989, I believe. And then your first Cassandra novel came out in 1990. Pam stopped at three. So I'm curious about Cassandra because I really like her as a character and obviously you do. What do you think compelled you to switch? What was it about the Cassandra character that pulled you away from Pam Nielsen? Well, the Pam Nielsen novels I'm very fond of. um, And a lot of people always urge me to go on with her. 
She reflected a time in my life in the 80s when um, a lot of people worked in collectives. And uh, in this case, it was a printing collective. And it was based on some people I knew um, and early days of Seal Press as well in Pioneer Square. And I think that world was starting to dissolve a, a bit. I would have a hard time now sort of figure, figuring out who Pam was and, and what she ended up doing with her life. I kind of brought things to a close in the third novel um, with her finding love with her girlfriend, Hadley, and um, kind of coming to the end of that way of, of writing mysteries that were about feminist issues in particular, like I tackled race, I tackled uh, pornography and abuse and um, issues around SM, um, you know, kind of with a light touch, but they were a little bit didactic in some ways. And I think people like them because they they brought lots of questions to the fore that in the 80s, women lesbians were very preoccupied with. What should our community look like? And I think that I just came to the end of that. The other thing is that I ha I was living in England. I had a lover who was British and I was there for several years and going back and forth. And I think for a time, I actually thought I might even move to England permanently. But I was traveling a lot and I was doing some translation. And I, I think I wanted a character who was um, not such a strong lesbian feminist, who was more fluid, who um, slept with a lot of women, who traveled and moved in cultures where, you know, people weren't just lesbians. They were married. They were bisexual. Um I was interested in exploring those sort of outer edges of, of the lesbian world. And I had been asked to write a short story for an anthology. And I kind of came up with this character of Cassandra. And from then on, I um, really wanted to stick with her. And I know that that was a kind of a shift and a shock for some of my readers because she was a really, really different character than Pam had been. I think Pam was easier for people to identify with. But it was also interesting because Cassandra was someone that kind of crossed more borders. And those books were read by, I think, a slightly wider audience than just lesbian feminists. Over that 20-year period, that when we came back to Cassandra, she is still single. Did she have a relationship during that time period? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and or why have you chose not to have? Well, her she's always seeing someone. She's got a very roving eye, mm -hmm. in, uh, and she doesn't get in tragic affairs, and she doesn't hurt people's feelings. Um, you know, if things are getting complicated, she'll leave the country. So I think she and her best friend Nikki are sort of alike in that way. They're flatmates in London, and Nikki is a retired bassoonist, and they don't have a sexual relationship. Um, they're sort of family to each other, but I think they both have an eye for the ladies, um, and so they joke about that, and from time to time, one of them is involved in a relationship that's, you know, usually short, but they always kind of come back to each other. So Cassandra has that long-term relationship 
with her friend, Nikki, um, in, in all of the books. And sometimes Nikki is playing a larger role. And that's true in Love Dies Twice, that Nikki is actually with her on some of her investigations and they go to Bruges together and Nikki is um, kind of spinning some ideas off as well about what might have happened. That's not uncommon, the long-term relationships that can last decades with it just ain't friendship. And that kind of fulfills that desire to be settled. But then there's the wandering eye side of a person. <laughs> That's not uncommon, is it? No, it's not at all. It's not. And I was very interested in Love Dice twice in exploring lots of different kinds of lesbian lives and also lesbian loves. Um, some of them are friendships. Some of them are obsessions. Some of them are long ago relationships that you just can't get out of your mind that are still kind of wreaking havoc in your psyche. Um, you've never gotten over that person. And some are very chaste um, sort of romances. And I've seen all those things in the circles that I move in. And I don't, but I haven't seen them really written about um, over a long period of time. I mean, I think that lesbian novels are so much about um, youthful relationships, especially these days with YA novels taking up such a share of the market. I think we're lacking. Um, not only examples in our literature of really healthy, happy, married life, where that's a little bit boring, maybe. Um, we're also lacking pictures of women who are older, who are still on the make, basically. Um, and I think that's really true, too. Not everyone is just married these days. I am, though. <laughs> <laughs> As you were describing that, I'm thinking, well, she's married. <laughs> I know. It's good, though. I didn't settle down until I was older. <laughs> I love being settled. Yeah. Though I had my day and I had a good time. Yeah. So sticking with the aging thing, you wrote an article for Crime Reads. And you said that one of the reasons you had Cassandra age is because you wanted to explore the idea of a, a lesbian spinster. As I was reading that, I'm thinking of Miss Marple. Do you think Cassandra is a spinster? Well, the traditional um, definition of a spinster is not married. You know, up until recently, most of us were spinsters because we couldn't marry, though plenty of people were in committed relationships. Yeah, I think she's a spinster. Um, and I think that what makes it really interesting is that there is this whole tradition in mystery writing of the spinster sleuth, and they're usually older, at least in their 60s, and they've got their knitting, and they've got their white hair, and they live in a little village in England somewhere, and they're very observant. They're very nosy, in fact. They ask a lot of odd questions, but they're cogitating the whole time, and that's a real tradition, especially in British mysteries. You know, we don't really have that in the same way in American literature. We've got uh, private eyes who drink a lot, who are depressed often, who have complicated family relationships, um, and uh, who are usually about 35, um, maybe 40. And they go on kind of year after year um, in the mean streets of Chicago 
or wherever their city is. They're usually very urban, but we don't have older women generally, and we almost have no older lesbians. I think that's one of the reasons that I'm actually quite interested in what Catherine Forrest is doing, because she is one of the few who has let her character Kate Delafield age. And I think that's wonderful. And I have talked to Catherine about it, and she says it's the best decision she ever made. Um, and I think you see it in her books that there's now this sort of weight of time and what Kate has been through in terms of what she's seen in her job as a police detective, um, the PSD she sort of suffers from, the alcoholism, the recovery, um, the friends who stayed with her, the life she's led. It's a really, really valuable portrait of lesbian life that she's created over the course of those books. You're correct. The definition of spinster is just an unmarried woman. It's, but I, I think most people tend to think of the, the older lady with the, her hair up with the teapot. Right. That's why I thought it was an interesting choice of words. Two years ago, in 2020, the Golden Crown Literary Society, typically their awards are known as the Goldies, they gave you a trailblazer award. Do you consider yourself a trailblazer? Yes, I suppose I do. Um, what does that mean? Well, I think those of us who've been chosen to be trailblazers by the, uh, the Golden Crown Society were probably chosen because we were sometimes the first to do something. And in my case, um, my lesbian mystery, Murder in the Collective, was one of the first lesbian mysteries. And it came out the same year as Catherine Forrest's Amateur City. And she's a trailblazer, too. Um, so there was that kind of original being at the right place at the right time and just thinking this would be a good idea. I think the other reason that they chose me as a trailblazer was because I was one of the co-founders of Seal Press um, in 1976 when I was 25. And that was one of the early les or feminist presses because we published both lesbian and non-lesbian authors. But it was successful and it published lots of lesbian authors. And in fact, it's still going, even though it's an imprint of Hatchet now and still publishing nonfiction anyway by feminist and lesbian writers. So I think of that as an achievement. Um, it was it was alternately fun and kind of grueling to be a publisher for that long. But I I'm really glad that I did it. And I feel like I didn't sort of help make lesbian literature much more widely available and including voices of women of color and women from all walks of life published with Seal Press. What would you say, and maybe somebody has asked, why did she have to be a lesbian? Who? Pam? Pam or Cassandra. Oh, well, I mean, the easy answer would be because I was a lesbian. And so I was sort of exploring life through these personas. But I also think that, um, I mean, it's hard to remember it now in some ways, but there were so few lesbian novels in the 70s when I started writing. And I was kind of always looking for uh, models and examples and stories that were uh, about me. And the writers that I read, Colette and 
Virginia Woolf and Simone de Beauvoir, um, they were not lesbian like I was or like my friends were. They were um, literary writers who were always had relationships with men as well. And then there was this alternate tradition, which was the sort of underground press and these great books like Bebo Brinker. And I was not quite so aware of them, um, a little bit aware of them in the 60s and 70s. But at that time, kind of a renaissance of writing about uh, lesbians and, you know, all gay people. This was going on in gay male writing as well in the in the 70s. And I think I was just part of that wave. I wanted to describe the life I was living and the lives of queer people. I wanted to give it the same value and significance and visibility that heterosexual heroines and heroes had. And it's really that simple. I was reflecting what I was living, but I was also trying to create characters who would last and who, when people read them in the future, they would say, oh, this is what it was like to be a lesbian or gay man in this time, in this place. I was just curious about that question because I've been asked, why does your character have to be gay? Why don't make him straight? You'll sell more books that way. <laughs> and that's, I've been asked that more than once. I tell you for sure. I, I was just dumbfounded. I didn't even, I, I, you know, it, it took me a few seconds to figure out how do I respond? Cause it, it seems so obvious yeah. to me well, uh, you, because I'm a gay man. <laughs> you could turn it around and say to people, why do you always have to make your character straight? It's boring. <laughs> But that's a default, yeah, <laughs> or it has been the default anyway. It's a default, but it's true. It's the default for a reason. Yeah. And I, I need to tell you that I consider starting Still Press in 1976 and, and starting writing a lesbian sleuth in the early 80s is most definitely trailblazing. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So since that, those early days up until today, what changes have you seen in lesbian fiction? Well, um, I actually am quite interested by um, this younger generation of lesbian writers. I think they're far more comfortable, of course, making their characters lesbian and gay. And, um, you know, actually, it's gender has really the descriptions of gender and living gender has really completely changed since the old days. And so that lesbians don't live in a kind of lesbian universe. They usually live in a more mixed gender queer world. And I find that actually fascinating, um, especially since some of those novels are published by major presses. I mean, that would have been impossible to have trans um, characters, to have uh, asexual, to have non-binary, um, to have all of those in a single book um, that just wouldn't have happened. So I, I find that really interesting and really exciting. Um, I, um, yeah, I think especially I read a book last summer that I really quite liked by Casey Quiston, I think her name is. And she was so at ease um, with her gay characters that I I was happy to see that. I envied that um, because that was impossible, you know, many years ago. Yeah, I think I've shared on this show before. When I lived in Los Angeles, I was asked to speak at the local Gay Straight Alliance at the high school. And I said, sure. 
And then I thought about it and I was actually in tears because mm. I could not have imagined anything like that in high school. No. We have a long ways to go, but boy, we've sure come a long ways as well. I think so too. And we shouldn't forget that. We should definitely celebrate that. I'm going to go back to Cassandra, or the, at least the novel. The story opens regarding the author that wrote the series with Biggins. Can you tell us who they were and how they're different than nuns? <laughs> because I'd heard of them, but I didn't know that much. And so I had to look a little bit into it. I'd like you to share. <laughs> I've been interested in the Beguines for quite a while. Um, they were a lay order, so they didn't take uh, religious vows. Um, per se. So they were not like Benedictines or something else, but they began to be more and more visible and um, to attract more and more members to their convents uh, in the 1200s, I think, in the Low Countries, in Belgium and Holland, uh, but also in Spain and Germany, there were beginning groups. And I think part of the reason they were so popular is one, you didn't have to pay a dowry to enter the convent. So you didn't have to come from a wealthy family. You could come from any background. And the other is that there was a lot of freedom within these beguinages, as they called them, these, these convents for the lay women, and that you could stay for a while and then you could leave again. So maybe you could get educated, you could develop some skills as a weaver, because they often worked in textiles, but then you could go home to your family or you could get married, you could even have a child, and then you could come back. But they were self-sustaining, they worked, they, some were well off, they were merchants and they had their own houses, others lived in dormitories or rented a room, and there were hundreds and thousands of women who lived like this. They were safe, um, within this structure, you know, the doors closed at night, so they were not subject to harassment. They didn't have to get married. Um, they could illuminate manuscripts. They could uh, sing. They composed music. They wrote poetry. Um, I was really fascinated because there's never been, um, until recently, much study about these women, and they had a lot of freedom and autonomy at a time when you just don't think um, in the Middle Ages of women being free. So I had gotten I had interested in them way back when I visited some of the Beguinages, and I'd always thought to myself, oh, I'd like to write something about them someday. So I sort of invented this series of historical mysteries that were set in the Beguinages, and I also made it a TV show that was very well known on the BBC um, or ITV, I guess, in England. And um, I had Judy, Judy Dench playing a role in, in the TV series. So I had a lot of fun with that, just imagining what it would have been like if instead of or along with CAD file, we had seen a whole series about women who solve murders um, within the confines of the Beguinage. Well, it really shows in the novel that you have passion or an interest in it. Without feeling like I was being lectured, I learned a lot. And that's hard to do sometimes. So you did very well with oh, that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I learned a lot, too. And it kind of plays into some of the themes of the novel, which is about um, groups of women and ways that it's both safe to be in a group of, of women and it's also full of conflict. And of course, as a mystery, you know, it has to be full of conflict. So 
somehow the metaphor, the Beguinage and the lesbian feminist kind of circle of the past in particular work together. One thing that really jumped out at me, it was a sentence in the novel. It's actually right near the beginning. Avery Armstrong, Cassandra is either describing her or Avery is describing one or the other. The, the discussion was basically that Avery had it better than Cassandra. And Cassandra said, not out loud, I had something Avery didn't. And that was freedom. Is that how you feel? I think so. I mean, I, I have always been really interested in money. Um partly because I almost never have had any. And I do feel a sense of financial insecurity having lived the kind of life I have with a lot of travel, a lot of interesting things and writing a lot, but not always getting paid very well for for my writing. That's explored quite a lot in the novel. And I think one thing Cassandra and I have in common is the sense of being freelancers and being financially insecure. And so she looks at life through that lens, um, but she's made all these choices. Um, she doesn't has never wanted a kind of full-time job. She's content to kind of hustle for work um, as a translator. She feels like she's okay, but she doesn't ever she's never had a house she's never had a car so in this scene she's sort of um looking at avery and thinking yes but i'd rather have my life thank you very much other than travel what other types of freedom do you think you've had being a writer and a translator well i think when you work in in the world of literature you have to um be a little bit of a jack or jill of all trades and so, you know, I was never trained to be a translator or a publisher or an editor or a writer for that matter um, in any of my college classes. <clears throat> I kind of got a general sense of the world um, and my travels kind of continued to bring me in contact with lots of interesting people. And I always read a lot of books, but a lot of things I had to learn on my own how to do them. And it gave me a sense of confidence and freedom to know that there was always something that I could do. I could teach. I could edit other people's manuscripts. I could translate. My knowledge of publishing has always been really helpful to me, both when I was a publisher, but also afterwards when I was a writer in terms of contracts and and just um, even knowing how to self-publish books. Um, I've been able to do that. So, yeah, I think... Um, in spite of sometimes wishing that I made more money, of course, um, I have really enjoyed that I have never really had a full-time job in my life. Um, I have worked part-time jobs, and I've worked at everything hard, but I've been free to travel, um, to just say yes to things, to move to to different places if I wanted. You know, there was a time in Seattle when I just moved to England. There was another time when I moved to Oakland for two years. Um, I now live in Port Townsend. And I've been able to do all that somehow or other through making a living at what I love, which is literature. And you've done things that other people can only dream of. In fact, I'm sitting here, you know, I had those opportunities too. And I'm like, why? She's, this sounds wonderful. Why didn't I do that? <laughs> Something else happened to you that other writers dream of. Your novel 
Gaudi Afternoon, which I love the title. Now it came to the big screen. It was released in 2001, I believe it is. Yes. How did it feel when you got that phone call? Well, you know, I, I never really thought it would happen, to tell you the truth. I think it took about 10 years. And I think when I got the first phone call, it was someone at Seal Press. I was at home and someone at Seal Press had given this guy my home number. So he called me and I was washing the dishes and he said, oh, I've read your book, Gowdy Afternoon. I would love to you know, write a screenplay and see if I could get it published. And he had actually no qualifications. And he was a big dreamer. Um, he later became a great friend of mine. James Myray was his name. You know, he I think he optioned it first. I said, well, fine, why not? But it seems so unlikely that a book like that would be ever made into a movie. And he would surface, you know, every year or two and say, oh, I've made contact with so-and-so or someone's interested or now Susan Seidelman was interested in becoming the director. But we need to have some people attached. And we're thinking about Helen Mirren. And I would just think to myself, Helen Mirren, are you nuts? Um, this is never going to happen. But it did happen. They found a Spanish producer and they got Judy Davis attached and Marsha Gay Harden and Juliet Lewis and Lily Taylor. And they did make a movie. So it was quite an interesting event. I did go to Barcelona and I saw them filming it for a few days. And that was totally fun. That was really fun. And I did. Um, see it before it came out. I was, I had not participated in the screenplay at all. I think I read one version and thought it was really horrible. And so I just said, I'm not getting involved in this. And it didn't come out as I would have wished. I, I, I didn't actually like all of the script so well. I liked the language that they took directly from my book, but some of the other things were a problem. And they had decided early on they didn't want to make Cassandra a lesbian because they felt that would make it too difficult to um, draw the actors they wanted and get an audience. And of course, by the time it finally came out 10 years later, they could have just as well have made Cassandra a lesbian because some of that homophobia was gone by that time. And then it would have been regarded as a really great lesbian film, whereas in fact, She's a little bit ambivalent. I think she kisses someone at the end, but that's about it. <laughs> that must have been disappointing. It was disappointing. Yeah. And, you know, I also was very disappointed with how they dressed Cassandra more than anything. She wore this shabby green coat throughout a lot of it. She also smoked cigarettes, which I thought was awful. <laughs> Cassandra doesn't smoke and she's a little bit more. I don't know. She's more butch than that. It's interesting they chose to have her smoke. That's, I wonder what the reasoning would be for that. And the cast, it was a great cast. Judy Davis played Cassandra. And I'm curious, Richard Stevenson said he would never have chose Chad Allen to be Donald Strachey when the movies were made. But he was quite pleased in the end. How did you feel about Judy Davis being cast? And would you have chose someone else? Well, Judy Davis is really an icon, um, and I had always liked her movies, so I was thrilled. She's a tough cookie. When I met her, I could see that she's got a real edge to her, and apparently she and Marsha Gay Harden didn't get on at all. I mean, I think that was all Judy's fault, um, probably, but Susan Seidelman liked that they didn't 
quite get on together since there was conflict between them in the story. I don't know. I mean, I, again, I thought it would never be made. So I didn't spend my idle hours thinking, oh, maybe so-and-so would be great or, but I would have probably liked someone um, maybe a little bit younger than she was. She was kind of the same age as Cassandra, I suppose, but it was just a different vibe. Um, you know, Cassandra is butch. She's been around the world. She's she's very easygoing in lots of ways. She's not actually that edgy at all. Um, she's curious, she's observant, and she's got a wry sense of humor. So any actor who could have captured that probably would have been a good one for me. I mean, I'm not sorry. I learned a lot and I thought it was a very fascinating experience to be part of. But the book and the film are quite different. I would never describe her as edgy, Cassandra. <laughs> no. So before I let you go, it is time for Awkward Questions Authors Get. Don't know if you remember from the first time you're on the show, I spin the wheel and we get a question. And it's a question that sometimes we're asked that are awkward or we're not sure how to answer. And sometimes they're downright rude. So are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Let's spin the wheel. Okay. This is one of my favorites. Why not write erotica? That's where the money is. <laughs> is it? Is that where the money is? Well, I guess I'll reconsider then. Maybe I will write erotica. I don't know if that's where the money is. You certainly see a, a lot of them. Uh, on Amazon, but they all tend to be uh, a lot more 99 cents. <laughs> Barbara has been delightful to have you back on. And again, it's Love Dice twice and it's available in May, but you can pre-order it now. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Brad. It's been great talking to you again too. Yeah.